On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor. And I'm Jack Frenino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us. Twenty twenty two is turning out to be a big year for Billy Joel. Just by the end of February, fans enjoyed a unique weekend of music in a city where Billy doesn't often play. And new vinyl releases expanding on last year's box set include an album few fans have ever owned on vinyl before. We're covering these events in this episode while also looking at a much quieter, often overlooked point in Billy's career, his 2008 tour of Australia, New Zealand, and Japan. By the end of the new century's first decade, Billy's career appeared to be winding down. It had been seven years since his last release of new music and 15 since his last pop album, and his tour schedule was dwindling with fewer dates each year. Billy would hit the road again with Elton John in 2009. For this year, however... Fans would only get a handful of television appearances and a run of tour dates on the other side of the world from his home on Long Island. He'd still be years away from the garden residency that fueled a renewed interest in his live performances and a critical reassessment of his place in pop culture history. For those keeping score 14 years ago, it may have looked like his number was up. But, as we've seen just by the news this year, Billy still had a lot to offer. Join us as we recap the last few weeks of Billy Joel news and dig deeper into his 2008 tour. Well, we're back with another late-breaking news-slash-hodgepodge sort of an episode. So this time around, we've got some great updates from Michael in particular, who's been on top of all the latest happenings. And then we'll dive into sort of a low-key year, which was 2008. But first, we're looking at current events. The Taylor made for Michael Grosner, Metallica and Billy Joel weekend in Las Vegas. <laughs> are, are you a gambling man, Michael? Was this like a trifecta or was two out of three good enough? You know, I should have put some money down because, man, luck was on my side for this event to happen at all. I tell you what. Yeah, really. Sure, at least um, played the lotto. <laughs> seriously, I never in my life did I think that all of that would align to to come together. In fact, I may have mentioned it when we talked about it being announced back in November or October that uh, had it been only one of the two, I wouldn't have made the trip because, you know, I've seen them both a lot and 
they're just kind of one-off shows. But as soon as they both announced, uh, my wife, Jen, she looked at me, she's like, okay, we have to figure this out because <laughs> this will never happen again. So a whole weekend and, and, and possibly a kidney or two later on the black market. <laughs> I spent the couple months leading up to it selling some, you know, duplicates in, in my collection and, you know, selling a couple old iPods that I had lying around and <laughs> just scraping up together some extra cash just to uh, make it happen. But somehow it worked. And um, yeah, man, it was a whirlwind. I was literally there for essentially a day and a half. It was a lot of fun. My first question, because, you know, obviously I wasn't there. Did you get the impression that there were a, a sizable number of people at both shows? Yeah. So both shows were at the same venue, which was Allegiant Stadium, which is the football stadium that's fairly new that the Raiders play at. It's about a, um, you know, 55-ish, 60,000 capacity for concerts. Metallica was officially considered a sold-out show. Billy was not, but I tell you what, by showtime, it was absolutely packed in there. So they filled the room. Did anybody mention the other band during their set? Like, was there a acknowledgement of, of the magnanimous doubleheader this, this particular weekend? No, I'm actually kind of bummed that neither of them mentioned the other at all. I, I know it's like promoters and management who are in charge of you know promoting these these type mm. of things, but... It would have been cool to to hear James mention Billy or Billy mention Metallica, but it had yeah, none of that happened. The only reference I saw the whole weekend was the morning that Metallica loaded in for sound check. I guess there was a the Raiders or they'll they'll paint like on one of the main walls backstage. It'll say like you know welcome Metallica, welcome whatever, and it said welcome Metallica and Billy Joel right next to each other. Kirk Hammett <laughs> posed for a photo. In between this big painting with this thumbs up and it says now that's a show hello las vegas and then he used the hashtag heavy metal piano man so they were trying to get something trending at least i guess we'll indulge you for once tell us how the metallica show was go i actually get to talk about a metallica show <laughs> with a little bit of detail they had two openers one was a band called ice nine kills which i did not see and then the other was greta van fleet which is a band out of michigan that have definitely like that led zeppelin 70s rock vibe and they put on a actually a pretty high energy show and i know uh, a lot of metal fans don't really dig them but i thought they were a lot of fun and uh metallica came out swinging they opened the show with whiplash so that's how the night started Ooh, yeah they did whiplash and ride the lightning to uh kick off the show and just you know two high energy thrashers to come out of the gate and mm -hmm. you know metallica is not in mid-tour right now they uh did the 40th anniversary shows in december which i was at but that's been it since and so this was certainly a one-off for them it was a lot of fun the show itself set list wise was very much a greatest hits show so to speak right. you know aside from those two to kick it off but it was i mean you go through the set list i'm not gonna oh it's only 16 songs i'll just rattle it off they did whiplash ride the lightning memory remains seek and destroy yule one 
Sabbath true, moth into flame, wherever I may roam, for whom the bell tolls, creeping death, fade to black, master of puppets, and then the encore of battery, nothing else matters, and inner Sandman. That's, that's, you know, that's almost daring in a way. I, not having never been to see Metallica, uh, putting Sandman at the end, I feel like that would just piss off everybody. <laughs> like, yeah. there's going to be some people waiting to hear it, and then there's going to be people like, uh, I'm an old school fan. I don't want to, like, leave that. I don't, that's not the taste I want in my mouth leaving, you know? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny. A lot of the old school fans are like, Ugh, nothing else matters than Sandman to end the show. You know, it's like, you know, when Billy would end every show with, you know, Piano Man, and everyone's like, oh, really, again? And, yeah, yeah. You know, so there's definitely a lot of that. And trust me, Metallica fans bitch about the set list just as much as Billy fans. <laughs> <laughs> but see, the difference is, every couple of years, Metallica is still putting out new albums. So things get shuffled every five, six years because they introduce some actual new material. I was spoiled at the 40th anniversary shows with a lot of rare deep cuts, and mm-hmm. this didn't really have them, but I mean, I can't complain. I mean, I've never, yeah. I've seen them, this was I think show 15, and they just brought it. High energy from top to bottom. They were visibly in a good mood. Like, you could tell that they just are so relieved to be back out playing and doing all of that. You know, everyone was joking and having a good time, and being a one-off show, it wasn't an elaborate stage production either which was kind of cool because metallica is one band that has done very elaborate and unique stage setups but they don't need it 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 does enhance the show but they can also just go up there on a bare stage and play yeah and that's kind of what it was it was literally a plain stage lars's drums were on a riser that they literally rolled out 20 minutes before their set and they had four white cabinets with the metallica m on either side of Lars. And then they mm-hmm. had about six vocal mics that lined the front of the stage. And that was about mm-hmm. it. Well, I would imagine part of that has to be just the ease of, of swapping out two different shows that quickly. Yeah, exactly. And to that point, Billy and Metallica actually shared the same basic stage. They had the same basic deck. It was Billy's standard stadium setup with the, you know, the tiered stage and that, you know, the kind of the, the curved front with the, his piano mm-hmm. that rotates and the whole bit. It was so yeah. it was his normal production anytime you've seen him in a baseball stadium the last several years it was all there but mm-hmm. the the bones of the stage were the same for both nights so Metallica didn't have that like in the round thing they do or like they're more in the middle of the of the arena correct yeah they they do yeah. that typically just in arenas uh when they did their last album tour it was an end stage setup but they also had a snake pit with ramps that came out to a point and then bit of the crowd in the middle of it all uh they right. didn't do anything like that this go around it was just the the straight stage but man i tell you what you forget sometimes how big football stadiums are until you see it filled with people like the floor filled with people yeah during metallica we had a lower level seat as well and you could just see different sections of the floor different pits starting during different songs and it was just <laughs> a sea of movement all night it was wild
So from there, let's jump into Billy now. I feel like it's an obvious question, but you know, what was the, the change in atmosphere from uh, from Metallica to Billy? And you know why? I think it's it's not as silly as a question as it would be sort of anywhere but Vegas because it, Vegas is such a tourist place. Was the vibe closer than you would think between the two shows in a city like that? I would say the Billy show definitely trended older in crowd and more reserved. The majority of the crowd felt like a typical middle-aged Billy Joel show where Mm -hmm. a lot of people sitting and the occasional pockets of people standing up and dancing at their seat. I will say, you know, I'm, I'm fairly involved in the Metallica fan community and there was a lot of people who went to both shows. So there was, and we saw a handful of Metallica shirts at the Billy show. You know, a lot of people I think were already coming for Metallica and were, you know, maybe not necessarily a Billy fan, but we're like, you know, Hey, the next night, Billy's there. This is the best chance to check out a Billy show. And I tell you what, a lot of those people, he won over. There's a thread in the Metallica message board where about, about the Vegas show and Mm -hmm. the last two days, it's been all Billy talk where everyone's like, Holy shit. I I never knew how good, (laughs) you know, what, how funny he was and what a good live show it was. And I mean, classic song after classic song like i mean he blew people away which was really cool that's so funny because you know obviously we spend so much time on the retold page you know not to say people are, are ungrateful by any means but you know we do we get the bickering about the set lists it's refreshing to hear when you get that cross-pollination and you see why and how that formula works you know like how many more people now are, are a little in the billy I, I think he won over some new new metallica people uh which was yeah. really cool to see and, you know, I, I actually guessed it on Metal Up Your Podcast uh, last week, which is actually yesterday as the date of the recording. I literally mm-hmm. hopped on a call 15 minutes after I walked in the door from the airport. <laughs> <laughs> so I was t- chatting with Ethan about it. I, and I think what it is, it's like, you know, Metallica is one of those bands that stands above a lot of them. They have such good songs. Their songs are so good. Yeah. And Billy, you know, Billy's like that too. So I think a lot of, there's that through line where a lot of people like could respect that, like in both bands over the course of these two nights, you saw like 40 classic songs by two of the biggest and best to ever do it. Is is Metallica the Billy Joel of metal? Is, can we, can we say that now? Is that the, <laughs> I mean, who's coming close? Slayer's done. Anthrax oh, yeah. never made it as big. Testament nope. never made it as big. And neither did Megadeth. Yeah, well, yeah, Megadeth never did. You know, half of Pantera's passed away now. Well, I think David Ellison from Megadeth, he uh, put it best. He's like, you know, everyone talks about the big four, you know, which is Metallica, Megadeth, Slayer, and Anthrax. He's like, but come on, let's be honest. It's Metallica and everybody else. You know, Metallica was the band that definitely had the broadest appeal. And, Mm -hmm. you know, they're, as a result, you know, they're one of the biggest selling artists ever. So as far as the Billy show goes, what was your impression of that audience? I mean, at the garden shows, all the retolders are behind the stage and you're a great person to ask because you've seen Billy in quite a few different cities, you know, right. kind of across the nation. How was the Vegas crowd in comparison to anywhere but New York? Like New York's the outlier. <laughs> the crowd was into it. Really great crowd from the, from the get go. I, you know, I didn't know what to expect. I mean, you know, most of the shows, especially up until I moved out west, I saw of Billy's were in the Detroit area. And see, Detroit is kind of like an outlier, too, because they also have like a notoriously good rock and roll crowd. 
Mm-hmm. And so the Detroit crowds that Billy played were always incredible. You know, so having seen a lot of D- Detroit and a handful of the New York shows, I've seen some of the, you know, most diehard and energetic crowds. And this was up there, I tell you. And for a um, such a big venue, too, it's really hard to make it feel small. And it didn't feel like it was a huge, giant stadium in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. It was just a really good intimate show good good engagement with the audience and just the crazy yeah. you know the crowd just really you know out of the gate loved it i haven't actually looked what uh, did we get any surprises on this set list well, we almost got captain jack as we found out right yeah so they billy's social media people posted the the set list uh a day or two after the show and we noticed captain jack was on there and crossed out so we nearly got Captain Jack, and uh, that would have been great because I haven't seen that song live in a long time. That's what a lot of people were saying, especially to, to think he would take it out in Vegas, too. Probably the the song I've seen live the least that made its way into the set list was Say Goodbye to Hollywood. You know, he's been playing that a lot in recent years, actually, a handful of times, and obviously more so lately with Ronnie Spector passing away. There's that connection. I was actually looking at the set list FM stats for it, you know, granted, those aren't always complete by any stretch of the imagination, but, you know, he's played it on the low end three times, on the high end 11 times a year since 2000, I want to say 2014. Mm-hmm. But prior to 2014, he last played it live in, 2000, in 1982. Really? Yeah. Wow. So pretty much the nylon curtain up until when he started the garden residency he didn't play say, say Goodbye to Hollywood at all. And that really aches to be played in the big hall, too, I think. Oh, yeah. Just with that, you know, that big open backbeat. And it, it sounded it sounded really good in, in a big room like this. And, and uh, you know, just overall, Billy sounded really good. His, his voice yeah. is just in tip-top shape these days. And mm-hmm. he was clearly having a good time. Now, you know, I've seen a handful of shows you know, in the last 20 years and they, none of them have been terrible by any stretch of the means, but there, you know, there've been some times where just the energy was a little flat or he may have seemed a little bored here and there and, you know, things like that. But this show, he was like joking, having a good time, singing his ass off. It was really good to see. And for someone like me who can get jaded at a Billy Joel show, especially where there's not a whole lot of deep cuts being played, it really made the night for me because he was sounding really good. One other thing I want to mention too is how a lot of people bitch about the deep cuts not being played. And this by and large was certainly a greatest hit set. He did play the longest time, which, you know, he has finally been playing again in the last couple of years, but that was out of the set for a while and things like that. But whenever he does get to a deep cut, the crowd just goes dead or people get up. Yeah. And that happened this evening as well, because he did Whiter Shade of Pale, which, you know, was a Procol Harum song. Yeah. I noticed it mostly between that song and Say Goodbye to Hollywood were just flat reactions. Like people really didn't know it well. I recorded Say Goodbye to Hollywood and I was kind of near an aisle and you could just see so many people walking by, like going up the stairs and you better believe they weren't doing that during Allentown and still rock and roll to me and my life and all of that stuff. You know what the shame about that is? When's the next time you're ever going to hear Whiter Shade of Pale 
in concert, right? And it was beautiful that, you know, between, you know, Billy's voice was great. And, you know, I love the organ. David Rosenthal just knocked it out of the park with that beautiful organ. Billy has only played that ever three times. Wider Shade of Pell? Yeah. He's done that before? Yeah, he did it um, September of last year in Cincy. And he did it in Cincinnati again in 2016. I had no idea. That's not one I would imagine him making a point of doing. I mean, I wouldn't imagine him doing um, ACDC or rock and roll either, but. The uh, show t-shirt was a fun one too. It was a play on the Las Vegas sign. Right. And it said, you know, tonight the fabulous Billy Joel instead of, you know, welcome to Las Vegas. And that that sort of uh, rat pack at the Sands. Yep. Exactly. Yep. (laughs) So that was, that was cool, but uh, just a great, great show, you know, uh, 26 songs, including Ness and Dorma and Wider Shade of Pale and all that. So nice set list. And um, I actually ducked out halfway through. You may be right. <laughs> How and I'll tell you. you why. Yeah, I okay. know. I know. Well, one, I've heard it live. We're going to have to suspend you for an episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I should talk. I haven't seen him live in nigh on a decade, but go on. <laughs> well, one, I knew it was the last song, but two... I learned from the night before the Metallica show, because we did stay through the entire show for Metallica, the way the arena set up, you know, everybody essentially is staying at one of the casino hotels on the strip. Mm -hmm. And there is one way to get over there. It's one of the roads that crosses over the highway that they close to vehicle traffic. That's just pedestrians to get back and forth during the show. So there Mm -hmm. is essentially one road where 55,000 people are walking <laughs> from the arena to the strip. Yeah. It took us over an hour to get through it during Oof. for Metallica. And it was just a clusterfuck of people. So it just took forever. And, and Jen was so surprised, but I'm like, I do not want to sit in that again after Billy. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, we're getting into the third verse. So you may be right. I know there's nothing else after this. Let's go. And right. we, and we just beat the crowd. So it was definitely worth nice. it. But uh, yeah, I, I missed the last you know minute and a half of the show. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, well, it's, it's also fun that, you know, for all the people that got up on the on the deep cuts, you were the one that got up on one of the bigger hits. I know. And you may be right. It's one. I love that song. So it's like totally a song I love. But I knew that was the opportunity to uh, get back to the hotel before the crowd. Speaking of the crowd and Billy being in good spirits and cracking jokes, I, I understand he made some comments about the new vinyl release, which we're going to go ahead and cover next anyway. <laughs> you know, he always talks about how they're always putting out stuff that he doesn't have anything to do with or he doesn't care about. And he did mention, oh, we've got vinyl now again, you know. Yeah, someone posted it on the retold page. The quote was, and this is not exact, but it was, yeah, I decided to shut up 30 years ago since I had no more to say. But Columbia Records keeps putting out these new vinyl and the red one supposedly sounds better, but you don't need to buy that shit or something like that. Billy <laughs> last night. Again, I'll draw the other parallel to Metallica. People are always like, oh, they just keep re-releasing the albums and doing new this and new that, you know, the same thing. And, oh, now there's a new colored variant of this album. And, you know, yeah. every legacy artist does it. He's definitely not unique in that respect. And now granted, I'm sure he, you know, he didn't have to sign off on the Walmart release, but you know, he directly contributed to the vinyl box set. So he at least cooperated to some extent with that one. 
to be honest with you, I was really surprised to see the the Walmart set come out not only on the heels of the box set, but also you know amid the speculation that they're going to do volume two. So it feels pretty anticlimactic. But let's get into that because uh, you have them. I do not. I do. They're right here, actually. If you if you're curious to see what they look like, you can head over to our YouTube channel, Michael kind enough to film an, an unboxing for us but run us through so what do you have there funny enough again this is almost exactly like they did with metallica metallica this time last year did six mm-hmm. titles walmart exclusive colored vinyl and sure enough six titles for billy and so we have um piano man on a tan swirl vinyl and we've got the stranger on gray swirl vinyl 52nd street on blue swirl vinyl, glass houses on sky blue vinyl, an innocent man on custard vinyl, and Stormfront on red vinyl. Now, I would say for most of us, Stormfront would be the get because between Stormfront and River of Dreams are the toughest to find on record right now, or at least originals. That's definitely the one goes like original pressing wise goes for the most money in the secondary market. I'd say I'd say these days it'd be hard to find it under forty dollars. So, you know, at $26, it's certainly a more affordable alternative than trying to find a used copy because, again, they're not even that easy to find. And some of these have had other vinyl releases with, you know, music on vinyl, mobile fidelity, and uh, things like that. But uh, this is the first time that the uh, these albums, the three from the 80s, were done on vinyl by Sony proper since the original release. And I, and I tell you what, looking at them, I'm pretty confident three titles from the 70s, the Piano Man, Stranger, and 52nd Street, it feels like they may have used Edward's artwork for that. I was going to ask about that. Yeah, I'm not yeah. 100% sure, but it looks very, very much like it. The three from the 80s are, you know, would be in vinyl box set number two. So these are the first time that I've seen any kind of reissue of these from Sony. I was much more curious on, you know, how these came out and how these looked and all that. But the uh, these three in particular look like really good. And it's encouraging to see that they've got they still have the high quality original artwork and all the original files that they've used to reproduce everything, because it all looks exactly how I remember my original pressings looking. How do they sound? They sound really good. Nice and clean, nice and flat sounding. I think one of my, I don't even remember which one, maybe had a couple little pops during one song, a little noise, Um, but it just may have been a little dirt I need to clean out. But I mean, that was the only thing I noticed over six albums was like one song and it didn't even skip. So it was just some surface noise that I can probably clean up. You know, really nice job with the pressings on them. They're, the LPs themselves look very clean and very flat. Interesting color choices for sure. But yeah, just overall, just, you know, really nice reproductions of these original albums. And for the last 20 years, Billy has always talked about all these reissues and how he doesn't care about it and how he's not interested. But this is what's keeping him um, in the public eye at the retail world. You know, this is still helping drive selling the catalog. So, I mean, it's all good for him, you know, and the thing of it is vinyl is so popular lately. You know, I've talked with friends of mine who uh, own record stores and work at record stores. They don't even see Billy Joel vinyl pop up that much lately because he's been 
so popular again in recent years that people are either hanging on to their collection or snapping them up whenever they see it. Maybe 10, 15 years ago, you would see a ton of Billy Joel in the dollar bin. Now you're barely seeing it at all, you know? You know, it's something I didn't realize about Billy and, and vinyl in particular that probably due in large part to the garden residency, you're not finding vinyl as common or as cheap lately. I think I paid 10 or $13 three years ago for a Street Life Serenade, which I was kind of fine with. It wasn't the best copy, but I didn't have it on record yet, so I went for it. Um, and that was also downtown in Philly where tack a couple extra dollars on every time. I'll be curious to see if if the box sets and these uh, Walmart ones end up in stores as well, secondary, you know, used record stores and all. Yeah, I'm curious about that as well. You know, my only complaint with the design of these is for some reason, and this is again what makes me think that Edward only did the first three and wasn't involved in the second three, is the, you know, the the labels on the actual records, the coloring, like you can barely read the Columbia around the label, barely legible, where on the 370s albums, as clear as can be, it looks just like the vinyl box set labels the whole bit. So it makes me think that, uh, that he wasn't involved in the second half of these. But um, aside from that, everything looks period correct and like really, really good. You know, they also included these little 12 by 12 prints from that era in with the albums as well. So like for glass houses, you know, 12 by 12 print of him with the motorcycle there. And that was also the cover of the, uh, you may be right. 45. Am I, am I correct? You are correct, sir. Still got it. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So each of these has a print um, that goes along with the era. The 1983 one is a color print during the Innocent Man photo session. Um, mm-hmm. Stormfront has a color photo of him like le- leaning against the wall with uh, sunglasses on that. I remember having a poster of that same photo yeah. back in the day. And that's a nice little addition that they've included with these as well. But you know, overall, I, I'm going to give this this stuff an A because it uh, it really looks good. It sounds good. Uh, there's no information as to what master they're using. Like if this was remastered or they use like the 2011 masters that Ted Jensen did for CD. Just overall, very impressed. Everything looks really good. And even the spines look exactly like they looked on the originals. They, they, they really kept it correct. Yeah, the prints are, are especially a treat, especially for anyone who already has the original vinyl. As a direct result, you know how I was saying that retail vinyl releases and all the different things like that are certainly putting Billy a little more to the forefront. And it certainly seems to be working because Billboard put out an article today that uh, Billy has some new sales numbers and some new Billboard chart positions as a result. So according to Billboard today, and again, uh, recording date here is Tuesday, March 1st. So this is when this was announced says Billy Joel appears on the Artist 100 for the first time since the chart began in 2014 at number 34, attributed to new releases of six of his classic albums. Among them, The Stranger re-enters the Billboard 200 at number 186, 7,000 units sold, up 43%, making its first placement on the chart since 1981, and it peaked at number two in 1978. On top album sales, The Stranger enters at number 42 and Stormfront returns at number 94. I only heard about The Stranger. I didn't realize the rest of them uh, made a dent as well. Yeah, so all of those combined help push Billy back into the Artist 100 
which I think is a collective chart of album sales of that artist. So it's certainly working and people have been going out to buy it. And I, and I tell you what, I, I did see, especially in the Billy Joel retold group, a lot of people posting their photos when they went out to pick these up. So, uh, you know, the vinyl box set, especially when it first came out was an expensive price point. So I know a lot of people weren't able to get it, but getting one of these at $25 a pop or even all of them for like 150, that was a little easier for some. So I, right. I saw quite a few people picking these up and it's certainly reflected in the billboard charts this week. When was the last time Billy Joel hit the top 100? There was just a few years ago that the essential Billy Joel hit the billboard 200 again. It was just a few years ago. Hmm. Every now and again, he'll, you know, he'll dip back in. I'd say that was within the last five years, but I think this is the first time in a long time that a, a proper studio album has reentered the charts. When Metallica did this, the same thing with Walmart in, I think it was January, 2021, I want to say, mm-hmm. um, they did six albums. And I think billboard that week, billboard announced that Metallica had five of the top 10 albums in the country that week because of it. Yeah. The charts are so weird now between, you know, just everything being so fractured in, in terms of, you know, not everybody listening to the same thing. And then these spates of reissues, that people love to buy. It's uh, really disrupting the charts. Not that long ago, really, the Billboard charts were strictly either based on airplay when it came to, you know, Hot 100 singles and things like that, or the Billboard 200 charts were strictly on physical album sales. But over the last several years, now that streaming has played a significant role in, in all of that, the algorithm is adjusted with how it's calculated and so that all factors in to an album's chart position, not just a physical album sold now. That all adds up to 2021 being a surprisingly busy and high profile year for Billy, which makes it fun now to pivot to one of his low key years that we've covered. <laughs> I know. And that's why I'm very fortunate that um, we had all this new news to talk about this week because. We recorded this next segment, uh, gosh, a month or so ago about the 2008 tour um, that was originally going to be its own episode. And well, there's just not a whole lot going on around it. There's certainly some interesting things that we were able to piece together and things like that. But, you know, it would have been an EP of an episode <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> had uh, we not piggybacked it with the, all, all the, the stuff we just wrapped up here. But uh, yeah, certainly a, a much different year than 2022 is shaping up to be for Billy. And so with that, let's jump right into Billy Joel's 2008 tour of Australia, New Zealand, and Japan. We are the armies of the Billy's 2008 touring was a little bit unorthodox. Most of the year he wasn't on the road. 
except for two blockbuster shows in July at Shea Stadium, which we've talked about and we'll talk about a bit today. And Billy kicked off his first tour in a bit. After the Shea shows, Billy would find himself in Korea, Tokyo, Australia, New Zealand, and places like that in November and December of that year. It's a short run. He was pretty locked into the set lists, too. My conjecture here is that since he doesn't get out there that often, he gets away with it. Probably a pretty safe bet. He didn't get out there that often. Even though Australia was a big market for him early on and continued to be, I think after the album tours dried up, his visits out that way became a little less frequent. And, you know, I I don't see too many times where he was in Hong Kong, let alone South Korea. And he was in New Zealand also. He did uh, one show in New Zealand here. But yeah, the, the bulk of it was in Australia. And by that point, even in this short tour, his set lists were pretty much the same every single night. For most people, Billy Joel isn't the type of artist that people are going to travel to and see five, ten times on a tour. You know, same with Elton John for a lot of people. Doesn't have the fan base of the Bruce Springsteens and the Deads and the Pearl Jams of the world where they can go way deep every night and have radically different set lists every night. And everyone's along for the ride. You know, we've we've talked about it. He's just not that kind of act. The more stable set list is not too surprising. It's a solid set list. A couple surprises here and there. But no surprises. Uh, one, <laughs> right, but no surprises. Not literally, of course. <laughs> and, uh, we'll, and we'll get into it when we look at it. But uh, one song he doesn't play too, too often that I'm, I'm happy was in there. Uh, the notable addition this time is Christmas in Fallujah. Now, this had come out as a Cass Dillon song originally. Well, he, you know, Billy wrote it, of course. Cass Dillon sang it. Came out at the end of 2007. But in 2008... As Michael informed me, even though I'm still in his spotlight and saying it here, he released it in Australia in 2008. And so uh, this song got some mileage uh, when he was in that country. Yeah, I really think this was a surprising move. All along the way, he had talked about how this, to him, was a song meant for a younger singer. And that was kind of the intention. So even though the Cass Dillon version really didn't get much traction outside of the original press... I figured the song was just going to end there, but it was really surprising to see him pull out this song in a Billy Joel show here in Australia in 2008. And on top of that, Sony Music Australia went ahead and decided to capitalize that and then release it as a single. I mean, maybe it was a test market. Maybe it was just because he was going over there. It's tough to say. And you know what's crazy? Out of all the Billy things I have, this is one CD that's eluded me. i I never picked it up when it was easy to find, and now it's quite hard to find, and I still haven't been able to locate a copy. Really? Yes. So if anyone out there is going to take their Christmas and Fallujah CD over to Goodwill soon, give me a call. You know, funny enough, I'm just searching eBay for it on your behalf. Apparently, there was a release in 2005 by a group called Jefferson Pepper, who wrote a song called Christmas and Fallujah. Funny enough. Yeah, that's not a very common title, so I'm actually surprised... That Billy ended up coming up with something with the same title. Can you believe that was 14 years ago? Times have changed. That's equidistant between that and River of Dreams, practically. Wow. I mean, what what <laughs> what distinct eras from, from River of Dreams to Christmas and Fallujah to now? And you got to understand, a lot of people, you know, were clamoring for something new from Billy. And the two new songs we got in the mid-2000s, 
were largely overlooked and largely forgotten in Christmas and Fallujah in all my life. He didn't put a lot of promotional effort behind him, but I do think that's because he was in a position where he just, you know, got a bug to record a song for a specific reason. And I think that's just what he did. I mean, you know, all my life was essentially, and I, and I kind of like the song, so I hope this doesn't sound like I'm disparaging it, but it was basically, he had the money to, to get Phil Ramone and go in and do that, you know? Yeah. If any of us had this idea, you know, we'd scrape together a few bucks and go to our, our, our local um, recording studio, probably in somebody's basement, crank it out so we had a copy of it. <laughs> right. right. Both of these track with Billy's explanation along, you know, meaning... I'm not planning on writing and releasing more pop songs or songs with lyrics, but if the mood should strike, I will go with it. He had these few one-offs in the mid-2000s, uh, certainly nothing since. You know, on one hand, it's too bad that neither of them did much because I wonder if success of them would have given him a little inspiration to keep going with something, or maybe maybe not. I don't know. During that time when I, I think there just was a total dearth of good music in the mainstream. I'm kind of happy he didn't get the bug then. I, w- I would rather him get the bug now, to be honest with you. This will raise someone's ire. I'd rather see him work now with Taylor Swift than put something out, uh, than put a whole album out in 2005, 2006. Well, what's interesting, that time was kind of no man's land for him, no pun intended. Well done, though. <laughs> well, thank you, thank you. <laughs> you know, Sony did the My Lives box set, and obviously they were still releasing some things to try to keep fulfilling the contract. But I mean, he wasn't touring a lot. 2007, 2008, he did a couple tours, but I feel like these days he's much more in the public conversation than he was in the mid two thousands. The garden shows is what did it. And not only because he's doing it uh, so often, but it's because they keep selling out proof is in the pudding at that point. You, you can't, you know, nobody can deny whether or not he's still relevant or whether or not he's still popular. There's there's no way to overlook the fact that he sells out the garden every month. He's not out of the public eye long enough for anyone to wonder right now. Back then he was. I think now he's really cemented his, his legacy when it's unfortunate that it took that distance to happen because, I mean, his body of work has always been there. So, you know, the distance from it is only you know, made the appreciation grow and continue to turn on generations to Billy's music. I mean, yeah. look at all the TikTok stuff we've talked about recently. And you got 15 year old kids digging into Zanzibar and Vienna. They weren't alive the last time he put out new music. There are videos of uh, a kid playing with the Lords of 52nd Street recently, I guess at a recent show. I haven't seen, I've, I've scrolled past the videos. I haven't gotten a chance to go back and watch them yet. But to your point, it's catching on. It seems so obvious now, but you have to remember, this is not a foregone conclusion. I mean, think about how many artists were huge that just nobody cares about. You know, when Springsteen sold his catalog, I was reading the Bob Lefzitz, uh newsletter, the, you know, the entertainment guru, lawyer, spokesman guy. He made the point that you just never know when your star fades. He said, look at the doors. The doors are just like perennially popular. You know, I remember in the 90s, we were into the doors. The doors were like the stuff of legend. We loved it. I think even now, some kids get into the doors. And then he compared them to Jefferson Airplane. Like, I love Airplane. Yeah. It didn't occur to me until he said it. Like, Jefferson Airplane was probably even more important and influential than the doors at that point. But they're they're just not in the conversation. And you just never know when, you're, when your star is going to fade. So, I blame we built this city. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well... 
I mean, that that certainly didn't help. And to our point, thank God we never got a, we built this city out of Billy. The worst we got was we didn't start the fire. <laughs> and he was like still pretty close to his prime at that point. We built the city. We didn't burn it down. <laughs> so, you know, with all that in mind, we're setting up this mini tour of Australia. Again, you know, like Michael said, coming off that, you know, historic, but very brief two night stand at Shea. Goes halfway around the world for a handful of shows with his new timely single in tow. We start off this run actually in Hong Kong, the Asia World Arena on November 12th. Russell Javers lived over in Hong Kong for years. And I know he had sat in with Billy on and off over the years since leaving the band. I'm curious if this was one of the times where they uh, connected and he sat in with him. But after that, we've got November 15th in Seoul, Korea, November 18th in Tokyo. And then we head over to Australia, which is where the meat of the shows were. I'm going to read off the set list from November 12th at Asia World Arena in the Islands District of Hong Kong, because this is almost exactly what we'll see for the rest of the tour. And we can point out the the differences, you know, kind of as we go, right, the outliers, exactly. So this show goes Prelude, Angry Young Man, My Life, Honesty, Zanzibar, New York State of Mind, Allentown, Pressure, Just the Way You Are, Moving Out, An Innocent Man, Keeping the Faith, She's Always a Woman, Don't Ask Me Why, River of Dreams, Highway to Hell, We Didn't Start the Fire, Big Shot, It's Still Rock and Roll to Me, You May Be Right, and then the encore is Only the Good Die Young, Scenes from an Italian Restaurant, and Piano Man. By the end of the run, Scenes from an Italian Restaurant's ends up about midway through the main set and the encore is only only the good die young and piano man but right now uh for the first handful of shows it's at the beginning of the encore and again highway to hell was with chainsaw singing this was when billy was really starting to get into adding the cover song to give his voice a rest for you know three or four minutes and you know i know a lot of people were like ah come on i want another billy joel song but This gave Billy rest and him helped him last throughout the show. And plus, if you saw any of these shows, the crowd just went crazy every time they brought it out. Yeah. And you're still getting 22, 23 song shows. You're still getting a full serving of Billy here for sure. It's so funny that, you know, people now are like, oh man, you know, you waste these three and a half minutes. You know, if you kind of added up the amount of time he would spend joking and doing impressions of other musicians and snippets of their songs in any given show in the in the you know mid 70s it's probably longer <laughs> oh yeah than the time the chainsaw has on stage now one thing that's notable about these set lists again with billy's fairly new formed band starting with chuck Berge joining in 2006 2005 and we had a couple songs here that really had been out of the set list for a long time and became regulars. Keeping the Faith stayed in the set list here for a long time. Zanzibar is still played almost every night, featuring Carl Fisher. I found it just amazing to hear like a bona fide, you know, jazz solo happening at Citizens Bank Park in Philadelphia. I thought, you know, just the feeling of that. I thought I was in Europe for a moment, you know? <laughs> yeah. Oh, 100%. After that, he jumps to the Olympic Gymnastics Arena in Seoul. South Korea. That's on November 15th. Uh, This set includes The Stranger instead of Pressure. And that's about the only difference. After that, he begins his 
nine show run in Australia. The first show in Australia, he opens with The Stranger and he has My Life early in the set. I must be seeing incomplete dates because Joel's website only lists seven in Australia for some reason. Once again, I'm on Setlist FM, you know, the Wikipedia of uh, Setlists. So, well, to be fair, I, I think Billy's own website isn't complete all the time either. There's some shows I've been to that aren't in the tour history. Again, this <laughs> further highlights the fact that it is sometimes really hard to land on the correct information for some of this Billy Joel historical stuff. And we certainly do our best to to get it right, but it's it's not always easy. Just for comparison's sake, you know, back in May, he was at the Mohegan Sun Arena in Connecticut for a couple of shows. And those shows had a lot, bunch of deep cuts on them. A Room of Our Own is, is in one show. Root Beer Rag is in the same one. Uh, Summer Highland Falls, Big Man on Mulberry Street. This night, again, it makes sense that he goes somewhere he rarely goes who is going to play the hits. But it's sort of funny to see that run of shows in Connecticut where he's pulling out some stuff he rarely does and then going almost jukebox, <laughs> you know, halfway around the world. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But we'll see here in looking at these set lists, he does pepper a couple in as the run goes. The next two shows in Australia, the 23rd and the 26th, these feature uh, sleeping with the television on. That's a deep cut, although it's you know coming up as a fan favorite now. And then this is a song I was kind of excited about. He's got uh, sometimes a fantasy making its way into the sets, which is you know wasn't a huge hit, but it's certainly better known than sleeping with the television on. So that's always a fun one. Captain Jack make an appearance on the twenty third. He rarely plays that outside of Philadelphia. I'll have to look at my history. Pretty sure I heard him play it on the Stormfront tour, but not too much since then. Especially now, he he kind of says that he won't, he will, really won't do it unless he's in Philly. It feels like it's too long. It just goes on and on, but yeah, it goes over, man. <laughs> We're getting the Entertainer here on the 29th, and that's another song that like now he plays most every night. That's right. the uh, Soul Survivor. It seems most of the time from Street Life Serenade. Although Rupier Rag also was on the 23rd. Oh yeah, there it is. And you know, that's so funny because, you know, so the story goes, he's convinced that he did well in Australia over time because they did not release Street Life Serenade over there. Right. It went right from Piano Man to Turnstiles. Yeah. And Turnstiles was a big hit there. I'll interject here because this, this you know, now that we're in Australia, this this would have would have happened here. There's a bit of, you know, gossipy stuff about Billy and Katie Lee his wife at this time that seemed to have, you know, occurred during this tour, getting this from uh, Fred Scherer's Billy Joel, the definitive biography kind of started a little before that, when he was playing the benefit with Springsteen for president Obama. So the story goes, Katie Lee per Billy's invitation, stopped by with some girlfriends. They were all quote, young, pretty vivacious, but there was a feeling in the room that they acted like upper-class debutantes visiting the hired entertainment. And somebody said like, you know, they were just, you know, the whole, group of them were being very uh, patronizing about it, you know, so it was sort of a weird dynamic between Billy and his wife at that point. So that happened about a month before this tour. And then also back in March of 2008, Billy was on Oprah with Katie and she had, I believe, a new cookbook coming out. And he, from all accounts, begrudgingly agreed to do this to help her out and clearly seemed uncomfortable with it. It just was not his vibe. I haven't watched it in years, and I remember watching it when it aired, and I just could tell it was like fish out of water for Billy. He just was not comfortable. Which is funny because we just talked about 
how comfortable he was on on Letterman and even uh, with Rosie O'Donnell nine years prior. <laughs> and I think part of it might have been the circumstances. You know, he wanted to help her out, and it's like she was kind of not using him to get on Oprah. But it seemed it was just seemed like a weird situation where had they not been married, there's no way she would have been on Oprah promoting a book. Well, you know what's funny about this is that she's asking him about the controversy around only the good die young. It's like that was what thirty years prior at this point. Like, <laughs> bit of an outdated question by this point. Yeah, and I mean, again, contrast that with what we had just watched when he's like bantering with Rosie O'Donnell and, and David Letterman, you know, and they're they're keeping it pretty current, you know, and right. If, if they're reaching back, it's Rosie talking about, oh yeah, I used to stalk you or whatever else, right. And, you know, even too, like over the last 10 years, whenever he's been on Stern, I mean, Howard now just asks some really insightful, interesting questions that Oprah's not going to come up with. This is a point too, where like he wasn't that it didn't never seem that interested in really putting himself out there like this anymore. So yeah, he did it for her. Clearly, it just seemed like an uncomfortable situation. And I, I just remember kind of feeling bad about it because it just seemed like a disconnect all the way around between everybody. After the, the Oprah appearance, after this, you know, sort of faux pas uh, at the Obama fundraiser, the plan is for Katie to go with Billy to Hong Kong, Tokyo and everything. She brings her mom along and then Billy and Katie are supposed to spend a couple free days at the Four Seasons in Bali, which is known for having, you know, a ro- really romantic atmosphere, quote, discreet service. You know, a real nice kind of couple's getaway sort of thing. But right before that, Katie Lee decides just to go home. We're not sure if uh, there was something that had to do with uh, something she wanted to do for work or if there was a, because there was apparently some thunderstorms moving in across the flight path. This kind of sucks. You know, she leaves and then Billy goes to Bali sort of by himself in this like romantic, uh, uh, you know, romantic atmosphere just on his own. Sort of sounds like the character from I Don't Want to Be Alone Anymore, right? <laughs> to be right. honest with you, like that, yeah, you know, that's that sort of I haven't talked about hapless Billy in a while, but this is sort of like hapless Billy come to life right now. <laughs> One of those sad romantic comedy movies, except Billy didn't find somebody else and fall in love when he went there by himself. Yeah, well, funny enough, uh, before Bali, uh, they all stayed at the hotel from the film Lost in Translation. <laughs> That's funny. There's not too much more to say. The set lists stay pretty consistent. At most, he just sort of maybe shuffles a few songs around here and there. Towards the end of the run, we get I Go to Extremes. Everybody Loves You Now makes an appearance. The Ballad of Billy the Kid comes in for two two or three shows here. And of course, you know, the only other thing is Christmas in Fallujah, which he hasn't played live in a long, long time. Probably will never again I think both because it really didn't do anything and also it's just so locked in an era. Goodnight Saigon is never locked in an era, even though it's so distinctly about Vietnam and written in the hangover of Vietnam. That one feels so much more universal of the Brotherhood of Soldiers. He was very much more writing out of his element on Christmas in Fallujah. So in the middle of this run, we get a review. And I don't think this is like in a paper. I think this is just a blogger. This is at the dailyvault.com. It's in the vault. It's in the vault, Jerry. It's the vault. <laughs> and it's uh, the angry young man down under. That was a horrible accent, but I'm leaving it in. Billy Joel live in Melbourne. This is dated December 1st, 2008. It says two years ago, Billy Joel brought his first solo tour to Australia after almost a decade. The shows sold out fast, real fast, and a great time was had by all. He is currently back down under with pretty much the same show. 
the only difference being that he has dropped some later songs in favor of his earlier works. Skip ahead a little here. I was struck by the small stage and its rather simple settings. No screens, no pyrotechnics, no risers, just like the old days. The stage was barely big enough to house the band and BJ's grand piano. That's an interesting um, observation, you know, that, that it doesn't seem stripped down or he's doing it on the cheap to, to this writer, it feels like, when he used to see him. Yeah, which is interesting. I mean, I feel like there would have been some risers for the band ever since the early 80s. They've had some sort of a tiered stage. So I'm oh, yeah. curious what this production was. This could be me getting it wrong. I felt like no risers meant more that like nobody was coming up from out of the uh, the floor sort of thing. But Possible. I could be wrong. Risers could just mean that. But at any rate, yeah, a little after 8 p.m., the lights went out and Joel rose from under the stage, seated at his highly polished black piano, the spotlight hitting him as he pumped out the distinctive intro of Angry Young Man. So now I don't know if he... <laughs> If he was on a riser coming up, and I'm completely wrong, or if he just came up the stairs. The band was as tight as ever, and Joel's pipes are still in fine form. His ability to showcase his complete vocal range within a few lines is a rare talent. Joel's easygoing nature made for great in-between song banter about his life and career, and he even downplayed some of his biggest hits. The Entertainer made an early appearance, as did his ode to the Big Apple, New York State of Mind. The only real surprises of that night happened in the beginning with a stunning reworking of Sometimes a Fantasy and the ethereal Summer Highland Falls, while the majestic scenes from an Italian restaurant sounded as inspired as ever. Well, now I'm really curious. Now, this part's interesting. Allentown, She's Always a Woman, and Zanzibar were all given extended workouts that kept them sounding fresh and vital as ever. Which, you know, Zanzibar certainly, you know, lends itself to some extended soloing from Carl, couldn't imagine what, what gets extended on Allentown if she's always a woman. Um, but this is a tour where we really didn't find any uh, footage anywhere. Joel then offered to drop a dud so whoever needed a bathroom break wouldn't miss anything. Uh, some folks got up but soon turned back around in a hurry as the opening chords of his seminal love song, Just the Way You Are, filled the night air. Having released no new material in 15 years meant the set list was absolute gold from start to finish. The only exception was his recent song, Christmas in Fallujah, which found BJ up front on rhythm guitar. He's pretty good, too. He then gave the lead vocal duties to Chainsaw, who belted out Highway to Hell. He stripped down. It's still rock and roll to me. Follow with BJ giving his best Elvis-style vocals a workout. The only songs post-82 that got an airing were his massive 89 hit, We Didn't Start the Fire, and the almost as big River of Dreams. Both were giving rocked-up arrangements, while the latter contained the verse and chorus of Soul Man for good measure. Moving out, Anthony's song appeared deep into the set and almost brought the house down. But of course, the one that created near pandemonium was Piano Man, which he closed the show with with in style. The crowd sang it with him in full voice and Joel rose to the occasion to deliver one of the strongest performances of the night. Funny to hear because we know he's pretty much sick of it by now. Right. So more than two hours after it began, BJ made a fast exit and as all the pros do, left us wanting more. He gave his all and then some, proving that age has not wearied him nor his canon of hits that contain some of Pop's finest songs ever. The staggering thing is that when the list of songs he didn't do is as long as the set list itself, then you begin to realize the legendary status he enjoys is not accidental or sentimental. Far from it, in fact. All in all, it was a great show by a great showman, and I can't wait for next time. This brings up a couple points that I... I didn't notice as we were going through the set list one, you know, on this particular night and much of this tour, 
he's only playing two songs after the nylon curtain river of dreams and we didn't start the fire there's you you see i go to extremes pop in a couple here and there but it's largely those two songs that night in particular he's not playing hardly anything off of an innocent man other than keeping the faith early on correct me if i'm wrong but that album doesn't get a lot of traction live it depends i mean uptown girl that's true but for an album that spawned off as many hits as it did you know it's just keeping the faith in uptown girl i mean you know clearly you'll hear almost anything off the stranger you'll hear most of glass houses handful of 52nd street you know these songs are among the hardest for him to sing well it's the hardest to sing and he also had the most people on that you know the biggest horn sections all these people doing background vocals it doesn't sound like the other billy joel albums you know I mean, you know, we've we've said many times they all sound different, but that one really an anomaly in some ways. And it's worth noting, too, after he and Elizabeth broke up, he was still playing just the way you are. And she's always a woman and the songs for her. But it seemed like after Billy and Christy split up, he kind of put a halt to a lot of the innocent man stuff for a little while. And now they clearly seem to have a good relationship again, which is good to see. And, you know, they've come back around to be friends. But I feel like for a while it was kind of dicey. And for for some reason, yeah, he just wasn't playing a lot of those songs. Innocent Man com- comes out every once in a while. But when was the last time he did Longest Time? <laughs> and so that pretty much brings us to the end of this tour. It was, you know, sort of a blip on Billy's radar. Nothing too relevatory here. Perhaps just the fact that this seemed to be the signpost of the end of his uh, marriage with Katie Lee. You know, I'm sure that uh, that botched vacation or that botched getaway uh, played a role. The 2000s were certainly a big up and down time for Billy personally. So it's really hard to tell where his frame of mind was at. But um, I mean, by all accounts on this, the single review we found, the shows were great. The bands and he both sounded good. So certainly uh, some good performances were had out there and, it's just interesting how this this was such a an outlier in this year that there really, you know, there was a good chunk of the year where there was nothing happening. But to do this uh, four to five week burst of shows was pretty interesting. Yeah. So that's all we have. And now it's time to see uh, just how many of our listeners are coming in from the other side of the world. Uh, anyone from Australia, New Zealand that uh, that saw these shows, let us know what you thought. Anybody else have memories from this time? You know, just, you know, even seeing Billy on Oprah or any of those shows in the States, you know, if you can share your memories of, you know, what the shows were like, what you could sort of make of his uh, demeanor at that point. You know, it it seems like there's much more footage available of his activity in the U.S. than there than there is uh, for this tour. So, you know, anything you guys happen to know helps us fill in the blanks. Put it into context, you know, 2006 and 2007. He was touring the U.S. 2009, he was back in the U.S. doing the face-to-face tour again with Elton. So I'm kind of surprised that there wasn't more international touring this year. It was just this this run of shows. So I'm curious what was behind all of it. Did, you know, he just have a couple offers come in and they strung together a tour? And, you know, I always wonder, when you have an album out, that's a little more typical and predictable. You know, you have an album out, you plot out a tour, but when there's no big marketing release, no big album to anchor a tour around, these things just kind of uh, happen. And, you know, these days it's like shows and tours can kind of run into each other because 
they're not so much anchored by a moment in time like the albums are. You know, we've talked a lot about the early 2000s were a really dry time for him. But, you know, 2006 saw 12 Gardens Live. So even before there was an album out, there was just a historic run of shows. And then there was an album out. So there was, you know, sort of a reason to get back out there. And then there was Last Played Shea, and that was an event. And yeah, this this sort of begins another, a little bit of a dry spell for him in a way uh, before the Madison Square Garden residency. I mean, I saw him in 09, and it was a great show. I saw him with Elton. But after that Elton tour, it pretty well dried up. And he was pretty dormant in 2010 and 11. And even 2012, up until that uh, 12, 12, 12, what was it? The uh, Hurricane Sandy show? Yeah. Where he and the band did like half hour or whatever at this benefit and brought the house down. A lot of people say that that's really what got Billy excited again about it. And yeah. the rest is history. I think everything built from that night. So that was the 2008 tour. Some interesting set lists along the way, but he certainly settled into some familiar territory with the sets. So I would say probably one of the biggest things to come out of this 2008 tour was the Christmas in Fallujah song, which Cass Dillon recorded, but Billy played on this run and released as a single in Australia. That was the last time an original Billy Joel rock song ever came to fruition that any of us heard. So that certainly makes this tour pretty interesting for me. And now, as always, uh, we're going to kick it back to you. We got plenty to talk about this time around. Chime right in. Send us your your Instagram. Slide into our Instagram DMs. Send us a Facebook message or a comment. Or just be old fuddy-duddies like us and write us an email. Who was at Billy Joel in Vegas? Who was at Billy Joel and Metallica in Vegas? Did Michael jump in the pit and he's just not telling us? I want, I want reports. I want photos if possible. I'll pay top dollar. I was mixing it up in the circle pit during Zanzibar. <laughs> <laughs> that shit was heavy. <laughs> Do you like your music heavy? And do you want heavy right now? Good, because Metallica gives you heavy, baby. Oh, man. No, once that flugelhorn break comes on, I go insane. <laughs> That's perfect. All right. Now here she's always a woman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mend your wounds. Everybody go back to your wives. <laughs> yeah. So let us know. And uh, yeah, who got the vinyl? Who uh, who gave it a spin? Yeah. Um, did anybody notice any any audio changes, any, um, any improvements, any deficiencies? Hey, you know, if you just got into vinyl and you've been listening to Billy on Spotify and YouTube, what's that experience like uh, making the leap back to analog, even though I'm sure it's digital to analog, but it's still a wider frequency range. And of course, uh, what do you remember from 2008, which, you know, unless we hear from somebody on the other side of the world, I'm going to guess none of our uh, stateside listeners were at any of these shows. But all the same, you know, give us your thoughts. He did make a couple TV appearances, things like that. Hit us up, as always, glasshousespodcast at gmail.com. We're on all the socials, uh, at glasshouses, a Billy Joel podcast. And when you're done pouring your hearts out to us, please, by all means, pour your hearts out on Apple Podcasts, if that's where you're listening to us. Give us that five-star review and that gushing positive review. Every five-star rating and gushing positive review tells the algorithm that we are a podcast of merit and should be put in front of more people. 
It's the most fun I've had exposing myself to people that hasn't gotten me thrown in jail. Yet. <laughs> you just wait till we make the leap to video. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. It's going to be a very interactive show then. <laughs> Sweeps week. All right. Well, that that's all I got. How you feeling, Michael? Yeah, I'm feeling good. You know, it's it was a whirlwind. This is a Tuesday night for us, and I got home Sunday night. The Vegas thing is still rattling around in my head. It was a whirlwind weekend, and um, I'm looking forward to digging back into this these final records. And it's a good time to be a Billy Joel fan in 2022. There was a couple dark years where there wasn't a lot to say, wasn't a lot to talk about. But, you know, seeing these great shows happening, these really cool vinyl releases and who knows what else is on the horizon. I know they're planning on probably trying to do quite a bit for the Billy Joel 50 campaign, the 50 years of Billy. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see some really cool things along the way in 2022. So we'll definitely be covering everything as it comes down the pike. So stick with us. It'll be a lot of fun. So Michael's going to go drop the needle and we'll see you next time. We'll see you soon. Thanks, everyone. achieve the American dream. The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions, and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.